Hi, I'm Jordana. Hi, I'm Sean. Hi, I'm Heather. Welcome to Meaningful Play, the podcast where we talk about video games, new or old, light or serious, controversial or inspiring, and everything in between with an academic flair. If you would like to support Meaningful Play, you can do so through Buy Me A Coffee. If you go to any of our socials or meaningfulplaypodcast.wordpress.com, you can find a link there. Thank you, and thanks again to everyone who has supported us. We really appreciate it. In this episode, we have a catch-up talking about what games we've been playing and reflecting on some of our favourite boss battles. Apologies for the quality of the audio. Due to COVID, we were unable to record with our usual equipment. We're also in the process of developing a new format, so please bear with us as we look forward to changing it up a bit. Um, but to start with, uh, we'll ask, what have you guys been playing recently? Okay, so I guess I'll go first. Um, I've actually been, been playing a lot recently, but there's one game in particular that uh, stands out to me, and that is a Spanish indie developer, The Game Kitchen's uh, Metroidvania slash Souls-like title, um, Blasphemous. So basically the premise of this game is um, the setting is this exceptionally pious land, uh, sorry, pious land, um, that is being grotesquely transformed by the very thing that it believes in. And these people that inhabit this land, they refer to this as the miracle. So, as you can tell, there's a lot of religious undertones, in, or I don't want to say undertones, there should be overtones, of religious <laughs> overtones in this game. Um, you play as the penitent one, who has actually been chosen by the miracle to undergo a great penance. And what this um, involves as you journeying to reach the mother of mothers, the holiest of all cathedrals, um, to call upon and commune with the miracle um, yourself. So, basically being a metroidvania, that means that we're dealing with, you know, a lot of interconnected um, map areas, a lot, a lot of non-linearity, and the collection of items and abilities um, in order to sort of uh, progress your way um, through the map. Um, and because it's a Souls-like, um, the combat in this game is very much action-packed, it's fast-paced, um, and it's very grisly and bloody and brutal. So basically, thematically, Blasphemous is a religious horror, which is one of my favourite types of horror, even though um, I didn't grow up religious at all. Um, I don't know why I like it so much. I think because there's sort of like this otherness about it to me, but I also love, I don't want to say love, but I also really like the concepts of like having this great faith and mm. doing what you can in order to appease that faith. And that's basically what Blasphemous is about. It's about um, undergoing suffering in order to appease um, what you believe in. Um, so the the developer, uh, um, the Game Kitchen, they're actually based in Seville, Spain. And Seville, Spain was actually one of, like during the Spanish Inquisition, one of like the headquarters of like the church there. Oh, wow. and so, that, that, that city's history, you know, it's, its culture, its history, its architecture, you know, it's, its great sort of um, religious legacy is just all over this game. And I must say the world building of this game is what really um, attracted me to it. I mean, it does have all the kind of uh, beats that I like. I mean, the bosses are incredibly difficult. Enemies, you know, can one-shot you, you know, if you go to an area where you're not meant to be at that type of um, um, 
sort of play um, but I think what yeah what interested me the most was was these themes and um, the fantastic writing um, the art design itself you know the uh, the kind of desolate landscapes, the rotting gothic cathedrals, um, you know, the NPCs that, you know, seem completely lost and almost ethereal in a way, and yet um, you have to help them and, yeah, try to sort of uh, make changes in this great world that is so deeply within the the snare of, of this, this miracle. Um, and that's not to say... Like, and I love this part of Blasphemous as well, is that the miracle itself, which, you know, it's blessed all these people and turned them into monstrosities, essentially. So most of the characters, most of the enemies that you encounter in Blasphemous have been transformed by what is what's supposedly holy. Um, but that's not to say that the miracle isn't holy. It is technically holy, um, but it's also not holy at the same time. And I like that duplicity of, like, the miracle does kind of what it wants. Interesting. And it, like, me... reflects the culture of the people themselves. Interesting. It makes me think I've been playing a lot of Final Fantasy XIV lately, of course, because that's all I do now. Um, and in there they have a similar thing with these primals, like like maybe these people worship uh, a creature, but actually through their worship they produce a new being that's meant to be the god, but kind of is and kind of isn't at the same time. And it, it makes me think of that a little bit. And um, I guess Final Fantasy X as well, it makes me think of that with like the faith and how, yeah, I guess everybody's played, like, people know this game already, I don't have to lie. Um, <laughs> but in terms of how it was treated as such an important, holy, beautiful thing, but actually it's, as you find at the end, it's horror, kind of horrifying what's actually been going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would say that Blasphemous is kind of where that begins, mm. in a way where it's like, oh, the miracle, we're in the age of the miracle, like, everything is horrifying. Um, and I think that's what... As somebody who you know isn't religious at all and kind of you know interacting with this this world that you know has just been so terrorized with what it so deeply loves um is the sense of like i really do feel like an outside sort of i don't want to say hero but like uh, somebody a savior essentially mm. you feel like you're a savior even though the penitent one himself you know is a religious man he's a brother of the the silent sorrow um you know, he is actively trying to, you know, in going through the lands, in, you know, sort of uh, collecting, uh, completing the tasks that you need to complete. So, for example, to get to the Mother of Mothers, this great, uh, like, grand cathedral, you actually need to collect what's called humiliations. Ooh. The humiliations of, like, the, the head of the church who sort of turned his back on the miracle, then received the miracle. And that's kind of what caused some of what's happened in the land. Anyway, I don't want to go into like spoiler detail. It sounds detail. juicy though. It is <laughs> juicy. And so you have to collect these humiliations. Mm. All these humiliations are is mm. that they rest with specific bosses in the world. So, for example, um, you come across one boss um, called Our Lady of the Charred Visage. And basically she's, you go to this like beautiful mountains, like snow covered cathedral, but everything inside is like burning because it's the charred visage. Like no. these are nuns that, you know, are, are purposely burning themselves as, you know, presenting themselves as suffering for penance. It's very like Christian mass. Yes. It is, yeah. yeah, and that's what yeah. I was going to say as well, is that there's so, as I said before, there's so much um, religious icon iconography that is taken from Spain, and mm. even the, the penitent one himself, his, his costume, his, his appearance, like he wears this cone head, 
um, mm. and that in Spain is actually used during the Holy Week, which is the seven days up until uh. Easter, where parts of um, the Spanish, like, I don't know if it's a, a specific brotherhood in the church or if it's multiple brotherhoods, but basically they go to the streets and they start to enact Christ's suffering. Uh. And so in enacting Christ's suffering, they're, they're experiencing penance. So they're feeling guilt, they're feeling sin, and so that in enacting Christ, they are, you know, repenting for those sins mm. Mm, because he suffered for their sins, yeah. type of thing. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> not religious at all. Um, and I'm sure a lot, a lot of what this game was actually trying to present probably did go over my head because I'm not religious, and I would love, love to you know sit down with someone that you know either grew up religiously or is still religious and has a really great understanding of um you know the bible and the teachings and see what they think of this game particularly being specific to spain i think that's really it's yes. nice because you can have a little read and look it up and it's sort of it's not just oh christianity as a whole it's this particular i guess can i say flavor <laughs> yes. of, of yeah, christianity no. and yeah. how which is really it would be new, I think, even to a lot of people who know a bit about that stuff already. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it was a fantastic game. I should really say more about, like, the gameplay itself. Like, mm. it's definitely, like I was saying before, it's a Souls-like. Mm. So, for mm -hmm. example, you know, when you die, you do have a magic bar. When you die, it's considered to be collecting guilt, and therefore your magic bar will deplete, mm -hmm. but you do drop a guilt fragment where you die. So a bit like in Dark Souls, where if you die, you drop your souls, um, which is a form of currency in Dark Souls. And so that currency is used not only for buying items, it's also used for upgrading your character. And so it's a big deal to you know go and collect your souls mm -hmm. after you've died and you've been brought back into the world. Um, while in Blasphemous, like I must say, I feel like the dropping of the guilt fragment and the depletion of the magic bar slightly, like there's no real urgency to go and collect the guilt fragment, particularly if it's not on your way. And mm. there's also confessor statues that you can find and you can pay a fee in the in-game currency, which is called Tears of Atonement, because of course <laughs> it is. Um, and you can have your guilt rid of, uh, you can be rid of your guilt. And so, you know, you don't need to go collect the guilt fragments because sometimes they spawn in places like, um, so I should mention as well, this is a platformer. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of environmental dangers. Um, so like spike pits, for example, and there mm -hmm. have been reports of people um, finding that their guilt fragment has spawned in a pit. <laughs> and so, you know, they're never going to be able to get that, that part of their magic power back unless they go to a confessor um, statue. Mm -hmm. But like I said, because it depletes so little, um, there's no real urgency to, to go back and get the guilt fragment like it is in Dark Souls where it's like, holy shit, I've just <laughs> lost 50,000 souls. I need to run back, get my souls and mm. then, um, you know, continue on with my so task. Would you suggest then for someone who's a bit put off by things that are way too hard because I just don't have the dedication <laughs> or the time to play it, would you feel like it's something that might be a bit more approachable for someone who's not into like, like I hear souls like and I'm like, oh, I don't have the, I don't have the gumption <laughs> to get through that. Honestly, there were only, I felt like the patterns of bosses um, were pretty evident. Mm -hmm. um, there is one boss, so Our Lady of the Char Visage. I, so like I said, Metrovania, the world is interconnecting, there are many paths you can take. I took the path to the mountain, the snowy mountain cathedral first. Um, and that meant that I had to verse 
Our Lady of the Child Passage first, which is the only boss in the game. Well, actually, no, there is another boss, but it's the only boss in the game that really integrates bullet hell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. <laughs> so this was like this is the boss I spent the most time on, mm. and honestly, I think it's because I made that initial decision of just I just chose the <laughs> wrong path. People say to choose another path first, and I think technically, I mean. The first three humiliations that you collect, um, you can do the bosses in, in any order, but there is somewhat of a, a sort of meta sure. order that you should follow. Um, so I would say overall, the bosses for me, definitely, I think one or two bosses I was able to defeat on the first try, okay. um, but the some of them were somewhat difficult. And by I mean difficult, I mean like maybe 10 tries. Oh, that's a lot you of know. tries. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess it, yeah, depending on it depends what on you're how, used to playing and stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It depends on how much of the world you've explored. Um, yeah. Again, Metrovania, that means that there's a lot of secrets in the environment, so you need to be a curious person because being a curious person in these games is rewarded. You mm -hmm, find, mm -hmm. for example, um, upgrades um, to, your, to your health bar. You find, um, like, rosary beads and prayers and all these other items that will help you in battle. I should say before as well, just going back to the, um, that, the that death mechanic and the magic bar. The magic bar is extremely useful because you do collect, like I was saying, for prayers, and prayers are quite powerful in the game. Um, it's just that, uh, yeah, I, I never found the need to, you know, spam um, sure. the prayers as much as what maybe somebody else's gameplay style would Yeah, demand. I feel like if I was like, if I lost three times, I'd be like, right, we're pulling out the big guns. <laughs> Yeah, I can understand yeah. that kind of varying a bit. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but yeah, I would really recommend this game. Um, there is actually a documentary that's the game Kitchen made. Cool. We're only halfway through it because I just haven't had the time to get back into it. But um, it really explores yeah launching um uh, launching blasphemers and how you know initially they had a Kickstarter goal of fifty thousand euro and I believe um by the end of it they raised well over three hundred thousand wow. and were able to add more people onto their team. Um, I don't know, actually I was going to ask, have you played The Last Door? Because yes. That, yes, that's, that was their first. Oh, I thought yeah. the name was familiar. Yeah. I loved The Last yes. Door. Okay, yeah. great. So as you can imagine, the, the, the narrative <laughs> skills yes. here are, are quite, yeah, quite developed. Was, and The Last Door really, it was really cool. It was like mm. a pixel style horror game, like, and I guess it was point and click, I suppose. but. It was really spooky. Like we legitimately got quite yes. freaked out, and it was it was incredible. You just wouldn't think it for that style of game. Yeah. And it was very cleverly done. It was. Yeah. yeah. No, I actually played it straight after Blasphemous. Oh, cool! And I loved it. So yeah, I went in a big the game kitchen like fandom spree, so to speak. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, whatever the next game is because yeah, they they know how to really. Um, feed into that sort of more mystical horror mm. um yeah that is quite engaging yeah. i'm keen i'm gonna check it out yeah it sounds like there's a really good synergy between what they're trying to do with the narrative and how they're designing yes. the game itself like yeah it, it sounds like they've kind of you know 
balance those things relatively yeah. well. Yeah, we call yeah. that lunar, lunar narrative frequency yeah. or something. Yeah. I think was it. Yeah. yeah, being battered by enemies all the time, like you know, you know, getting those scars from bosses. Mm. Like the penitent one is actually, um, you know, undergoing penance and repenting for his sins and that of all of Custodia. Mm. So. Yeah, there is definitely a synergy there, as you say. Cool. Yeah, sounds yeah. good. Yeah. I'm the same. I think I. It's not that I don't enjoy Souls games. I do, but I. It always. It sometimes feels before you start playing like it's going to be a higher investment. Yeah. Than another type of game because they want you to keep playing and to learn from your mistakes but it sounds really good mm. yeah no really it's definitely yeah it, it, it was fantastic and i do urge you guys to try yeah. it because it's yeah i mean i feel like this isn't said enough about dark souls as a series and souls born will include bloodborne as well mm. um is that you can kind of farm souls to level up okay. and i feel like um in blasphemous most certainly you can collect you know beads and prayers and other upgrades um that will most certainly make bosses easier mm. like i said i just made that that initial mistake <laughs> of going up the snowy mountain because i thought it was pretty um i should say as well like blasphemous has beautiful pixel art mm. as well like yeah it's just it's a gorgeous game it sounds weird saying that about a game that you know deals with such um you know grisly grotesque mm -hmm. themes um but yeah no it's definitely worth playing awesome i'm gonna add it to my list <laughs> <laughs> sounds wicked what have you been playing sean um i as usual i'm really boring and i've been playing final fantasy 14 and phasmophobia <laughs> as usual, same reasons as before. Final Fantasy is just so easy to dip into. I need a break from work, you know? It's just, you load it up, do a couple quests for half an hour, and off you go. Like, it's just easy. Um, and Phasmophobia has just been really fun. We've been playing with friends, and it's just great as a co-op creepy game, you know? Um, otherwise, I have played Black Sad, which is like a detective game. Uh, it's based on a comic, I think, and it's like... New York's sort of, but everyone's animals, that kind of, you know, that noir sort of thing that seems to be quite popular right now. Um, and yeah, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, I think there were, as usual with detective games, there's always some things where you're like, how on earth was I supposed to figure that out? And you feel like you've clicked on everything and you're like, I know what I want to ask or I know what I want to do. To me, that makes sense, but clearly the game wants something else from me. And for the life of me, I can't figure it out. Um, but no, it had a good twist, which I'm always a fan of, um, and overall I think it was quite enjoyable, yeah. Um, otherwise, uh, Heather, you actually got me to try Genshin Impact, mm -hmm. and I'm not very far in, I have to admit, but I, I, like, I think I'm still on essentially Totoro Island, but I really like the brightness of everything and the clean colours, and it just looks, it made me feel happy when I opened it, I was like, oh, this is such a happy, exploring little countryside, like, and I think um, I'll definitely keep going at it. It's very, it felt quite accessible, particularly for a game that, you know, because it's free to play, mm. I was expecting to be bombarded with stuff, you know, like new currencies that I'm like, oh my God, I'm so overwhelmed. Like firstly, I'm not doing it, but also it's just so overwhelming when they have all these yeah. new words for things and stuff. But actually it's been very accessible. And um, I think the one thing I find odd is the idea that you swap between different characters so like not in the sense that you're in a party together but in the sense you actually are a different character and I was like this is weird I'm kind of weirded out by it but 
I think I just have to get a bit used to it and try it as a different kind of game. But yeah, it's definitely like it's very happy feeling. It's just beautiful and bright and cute. And Paimon is super cute because I changed it to Japanese audio because I started speaking and I was like, oh Jesus, no! <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, no language pack, um, and it's great. Do yeah. a little practice my Japanese a bit. Sounds super cute. <laughs> I actually started playing it when it came out, and I like in 2020, mm. and I played like the first 10 minutes, and I stopped because it was just too cutesy, <laughs> and I would, I just was like, this is not for me. <laughs> but yeah, it it definitely picks up yeah yeah. I think um I think I was in anime mood because I had just ordered these little shells for my vocaloid dendroid figures because I'm a total weebo Um, (laughs) so at the time I was like looking at them and setting them up and then playing this game and it felt very very matchy um the thing that did make me laugh this is so random but um Paimon is the name of the demon in hereditary in hereditary that scary movie (laughs) and it's all I could think of and this cute gorgeous little chibi characters like I'm Paimon and I was like ooh <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah I'm, I'm definitely I'm trying to diversify a bit because otherwise I'm just going to keep playing the same stuff all yeah. the time um, but it's honestly just the ease like just it's so easy to, to hop into Final Fantasy or Phasophobia and play for a little while and then hop off again um, and know what I'm doing and where I'm up to and there's always something new to do so yeah Final Fantasy is like it's huge Oh yeah, it's There's massive. A lot of time you could spend. And because you can do each class, mm. it's like, and I'm a bit like, oh, I'll try a bit of everything. And that's how I tend to play a lot of games. So I'm in my element. Like, I love it. <laughs> um, but there's, I think there's a risk that I'll become one of those people who like only plays this one MMO and that's it. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, we're good. Yeah. I will say, I'll probably go into like light spoilers for Genshin. That's okay. I probably won't be able to stop myself. But um, obviously, it's not it's not a finished game. So they yes. they patch it every six weeks, I think. And their like long term plan is to release seven regions, and they've done three so far. Wow. But the God of each region is also each one is named after a different demon. So like, okay. <laughs> You know, they haven't really answered why, whether that's just like an aesthetic choice or whether it actually is going to mean something about where the one is going. But Paimon also is, you know, has that same naming pattern. Some people are like, Paimon's going to be the final boss. (laughs) (laughs) She looks like Jirachi. She's so cute. (laughs) Are the names important in any other way, just aside from like a more or less sort of aesthetic choice? Like, you know how in horror films, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you know the demon's name, then you can successfully exercise them, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think so far, I mean, I haven't reached the third region yet, which is the third one available. So my experience and knowledge is a bit limited, but so far they haven't really alluded to, you know, Mm. why that would be the case, but it probably is coming. Like, it's (laughs) probably part of a long-term plan cool that will you know unfold across the different regions but yeah it is it def it certainly gives something for like the community to like speculate about Love which is also which also could be like a bit of a trick to keep people interested and mm. wanting to find out what happens but yeah i mean i started playing Genshin impact i think in january i had a friend or two who'd been recommending it to me for a while and I think I was not put off by like 
the first time I played it in 2020, it just, I was playing cyberpunk at the time, <laughs> which is a totally different kind of atmosphere and vibe. I just was kind of like, okay, this is nice. And I moved on, but I, yeah, went back into it um, and started playing it again. It's obviously a massive game. So I feel like I'm finally catching up to what was, you know, to what's trendy. It's the biggest game in China. It was the most talked about game on Twitter in mm. 2021, which I thought was kind of interesting. I remember it being all over Reddit and being like, is this a Weibo thing where it's full of porn? Because yeah. that's what Reddit, you know, on subreddits, if you look kind of popular, it's like, here's a cute character from Genshin with huge boobs. And I was like, I don't know if I should try <laughs> this or not. <laughs> because you don't know if it's actually the game or if yeah. it's the fans, right? So, yeah. Well, it's kind of, it, it is a little bit surprising because it is a player versus enemy game. Mm. It's not like a player versus player game, like Overwatch or some other big titles that have come out. So the fact that it is so massive and it's kind of mostly built around mm. not a single player experience because you can co-op, but like all the main quest lines are single player. Yeah. Um, and the main sort of like end game content is also single player. So yeah, that that is quite interesting. But the, the story is that you're a traveler from another world and you've been separated from your sibling and your sort of in pursuit of finding them and finding out what happened is you're traveling to each of the different regions in the world to find their god and each each of the god represents a different element mm. um, and also a different set of ideals so the first god is sort of the god of freedom and the second one is the god of contracts just kind of yeah any there's i find like their approach to sort of exploring the different it's not really religious themes in the way I think a game like Blasphemous mm -hmm. is really like diving into. It's more to do with like morals and values, mm -hmm. I suppose. In each place, you can you can tell the narrative is kind of shaped by wanting to explore those values. Um, obviously, it has a gacha system, which mm -hmm. I think when it came out it was like, oh, it's it's Breath of the Wild with a gacha system. Um, I don't. You, a gacha system is. If you aren't aware of what a gacha system is, it's basically named after a gacha pawn machine. Yes, is yes. that the right yeah. pronunciation? Gacha pawn. Yeah, mm -hmm. gacha pawn. Yeah, so when you pull the lever and a little ball comes out with a little character. It's so addictive. Yeah, <laughs> and it's basically the same concept applied to games. You can spend in-game currency, which you earn from playing the game or from buying it with real money, to effectively pull the lever on different banners, and you have a chance of getting a rare character or a rare item or something like that. Um, and they are they are legislated a bit. So mm. there's, a, there's an upper limit in Genshin to how many times you can pull before you get a character that you really want. So in theory, like if you play for free and you're like, oh, I really love this character, you could save up and wait for their banner to come around and you could potentially have a guarantee of getting them so it's quite free to play okay friendly in that that's way. interesting because i wonder if that's something that they were encouraged to do because of policy mm. because it's a bit like a loot box situation or if it's something they decided to implement themselves yeah i think i i did have a bit of a read around like the policy around it because obviously varies a bit depending on which country yeah, you're in. Like I think it, Germany's quite strict, isn't it? And yeah, yeah, other places, yeah. Like Japan has quite a strict policy because obviously this kind of originated yeah. from a Japanese machine. Um, and China also has yeah. policies around it and it's a Chinese game. So that's 
yeah and you can you can see the exact like chance metrics okay. if you like open it up they have to tell you like what the percentages are interesting and what the upper limit is before you get what you want um i think yeah it is genuinely free to play which surprised me and seems to be a general theme around the press around it mm. a lot of people mm. are like oh this is really good considering you don't have to pay anything for it um because no part of the the gameplay or the story itself is locked behind the purchase yeah. you can you can play through the whole thing with the characters you get for free at the mm. side of the game and it doesn't punish you for that in any capacity there's loads of you know videos on youtube of people soloing bosses with the weakest side <laughs> character and, which is you know i think is really good and it's visually really beautiful mm. as well it's just stunning i think what i really grew to like about it really quickly is there's a lot of sort of like whimsy and creativity to the different landscapes and at points it feels a little bit like spirited away mm -hmm. where they've just gone like what if we make this really fantastic and we don't necessarily have to explain how everything works but it's yeah it's really immersive the soundtrack is great um they actually have an in-house music department which wow. is, i'm not sure if that's unusual for a game studio but it seemed interesting mm. to me. I feel like a lot of games probably outsource that work, but it's quite an important part of their design model. Um, Does it include any kind of advertising? In terms of advertising the gacha system? Um, no, just um, advertising in general. Like, are there any, like, like no ads at all? Like, no ads at all. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Because, like, I guess what always surprises me about Genshin Impact is you know i guess going back to landing blasphemous the documentary looking at the kind of constraints financial constraints mm. um that really impede um game development like genshin is somewhat of a um like a unicorn in a way mm. it's like oh this beautiful game is totally free but it also includes this gacha system mm. like have they successfully recouped the costs of development from the gacha system do you think so this really captivated me too because i've been playing it and i was like this is really good like i'm gen like structurally mm. in terms of like how the gameplay all works together narratively visually like it really works really well it feels really thoughtful um, so as I said, surprised me and surprised a lot of journalists who had kind of like, how are they making this work? Um, and my understanding is, so they, this Mihoyo, the studio, mm. they released, I think they've released two sizable games before, mm. and they do technically count as an independent studio, which is also kind of interesting. <laughs> and basically from the money they'd made from their first two games, Genshin was a little bit of a moonshot project. They were like, mm -hmm. okay, we want to use this to do this in a certain way but I was really interested in how they managed to make it work so I did a little bit of a fandom deep dive <laughs> um, and I was sort of like took, it took a little while to find you know information from the developer because there is quite a bit of noise around gotcha so you kind of had to like sift through a little bit um, but I read a few interviews with the founders talking about how they approached delivering or creating this world and something that I thought was really interesting is when they were starting to work on games they noted that a lot of the monetization systems in free-to-play games are competitive mm. so mm. Well, I think they use a really evocative phrase they're like it's you know it's 
it's about like hatred, you know, <laughs> and like one it players wanting to be stronger than the other ones, mm. or you know, losing, being like, oh, like if I if I have these items, if I have these characters, I can be, you know, top of the leaderboards and stuff like that. And they sort of sat and had to think about, you know, what they enjoyed and what they desired from a game. Like, what would make us personally, as people who make games and play games, want to spend money and they landed on, they'd want to spend money on a character they really, really love. Um, so their model, they call it playing, playing for love. So they kind of, that whole monetization system is completely focused on making characters that people are really interested in and that are well integrated into the story mm-hmm. and really well designed, which I noticed when playing, like even the free characters are all beautifully mm-hmm. done. Like there's just as much effort in their, you know, in their story, in their design, in their abilities and, you know, in their combat sort of role that there are in the five star characters. Um, and it's not it's it's not that they'll be the first studio to be like, players really love good characters. Like even when you think about, you know, it kinda comes from like Dragon Age often like mm. pitch their marketing around, you know, choices and having characters that people love and romance and all that kind of stuff so they're not the first studio to do it but actually it's the first time i've encountered a studio that just outright says yeah that's that's our model like that is our focus and everything else kind of comes Mm. from that i think a lot of open world games kind of are promoted around this idea of limitless opportunity you know you can yeah things and you can explore things and it's just endless and boundless but often it's it's just kind of big and empty because you don't have those relationships and you don't have those interesting people and it's kind of it's going to be full of things yeah exactly and so that it really struck me i think as well because that's something i'm really interested in from a research perspective is you know how people empathize with games and and narrative in games and stuff like that. So yeah, it's not that they don't pay attention to the world because obviously the world is really rich, but um, they said each character, they spend about nine months developing really rigorously and it's like a full effort across the team. They don't actually have an art director role. They have a game producer who kind of brings it all together. Um, Yeah. And it was quite significant because they released about 17 new characters a year. So it's quite a lot. For, I think at release, one of the panels I watched was in 20s. Maybe it was in, I can't remember when it was published, but they had 33 characters and they intended to release 17. And now they're at the point where they've done that and that's kind of their schedule because obviously each region comes with its own yeah. cast of characters. Yeah, and I, I found that in itself a really interesting it was kind of nice actually to hear a developer with such focus in their purpose and you know that's why they've kind of been able to make this work I think (coughs) sorry I was gonna say I think it's really interesting that they have gone the gotcha Roots because really they could just make all these characters mm. DLC right? yeah. and they could put a, a set price on them. But I feel as if, I mean, looking at some of the discourses surrounding DLC, there seems to be this uh, sort of consistent rhetoric that DLC is what should be in the original game, right? Mm, I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously now with the kind of um, 
the kind of limits that devs have when it comes to producing an original game when it comes to time that they need to get you know the main product out there and then they can add on you know those additional like mm. tidbits those extensions um but for a long time and still i feel some people are somewhat um suspicious of dlc they mm. see it as you know trying to milk the fans further mm. or whatever and i i think that's why i find the gacha system somewhat genius is that there's an element of play there as, yeah, as yeah. well right there's the thrill yeah. of potentially getting exactly. the character and it kind of is like yeah. i'm not like i haven't done loot boxes and stuff like that really i'm like in overwatch i did it when i got free ones i've never paid and for genshin i don't think i would because it's a slippery slope <laughs> but like i get it right you get it and like like yeah. it was addictive and when i went to japan and got and saw the gachas and they were like 20 of them lined up i was like oh my god <laughs> and yeah. it is something that's innate in us to try to, to get a kick out of that isn't yeah. it like, yeah and like it's very the way they've done it as well is really welcoming so if you pay nothing especially at the start of like right at the start of the game you get a lot of stuff for free. Mm. So you get a lot of in-game currency. Basically how the system works is you have an in-game currency called Prima Gems, um, which you can spend on a few different things, but one thing you can spend on is fates, and fates are what you use to make a wish for on, on a banner, and they, they change the banners every six weeks. And a banner is basically like, there's a, a main featured character, and then there's a few other characters who have their chances of, you know, being dropped increased but you know like paying nothing i wished a few times and i have two of the rarer characters just from doing that mm -hmm. so i think and a lot of it obviously has quite a big community around it and a lot of what i think makes that work is technically anyone can can access mm. the rarest tier of characters like you spend more money you're going to increase your chances. your chances but it even if you pay nothing and you just play the game at various points you also have the opportunity to be a part of that that sort of like sub game as you were talking about it doesn't necessarily exclude any of its players mm. financially obviously you know it's clever because you'd be playing through like a part of the plot and you're like oh the character is so cool because that's how they're designed to be yeah. right and like well i definitely want to try and get them if i can and if you have an addictive Personality. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I was going to say, like, there definitely seems, well, I assume there definitely probably is this element of FOMO there as well. Yeah. And somebody else gets to play as this character and gets to actually experience um, this specific characterization and world building and lore. Um, you know, you would be driven to, you know, try and make a wish and change the banner <laughs> and spend as much on that gacha as you possibly could just to, you know, complete that portion of the game. And maybe that's really annoying for completionists as well who potentially have so many characters and they just need these like last two characters <laughs> yeah. to complete the, their journey. Well, I mean the thing is, none of the lore is locked behind the gacha system. So you still meet the characters in the plot. They are all like in the free part of the game. So what you actually unlock is the opportunity to put them on your team, I guess, for when you're fighting and sort of travelling around mm. the overworld. It basically, so it's... Um, the gameplay is based around elemental reactions, a little bit like Pokemon. That was yeah. kind of my initial thought because there's seven different elements in the game, and each of the playable characters has an element which which they use to fight. And so, like, if you have a character with water and ice, you can freeze enemies really easily, which makes 
that's one way to play. If you have electricity and fire, you can make a lot of explosions. It's that mm. kind of elemental reaction. Um, so yeah, and in theory, a rare character has some more interesting abilities that you might want to explore, but no character that I've experienced so far isn't useful. Like every single one is totally viable, mm. ha- works with different characters in the same way. And that is quite enjoyable. I think that's part of the game I've quite enjoyed as well, is that the element of randomness means you, especially if you're not paying, means you're gonna have to figure out a different team and mm. kind of explore what works together. And I think because I quite like strategy, but I also like an action RPG, it, for it's me, perfect. like it's been really enjoyable to play around with those different elements and different characters and see what works. Yeah. But I think they're a very interesting developer mm-hmm. and I'm interested to see how they continue to build on it. They have said what they want to create is kind of like a, they want to build themselves into a bigger media brand, you know, they want to have comics mm-hmm. and, you know, probably like anime connected to their different mm-hmm. worlds and they have quite yeah quite a long-term goal it seems they still keep their older games updated which is kind of nice okay, yeah and a little bit unusual they haven't just kind of like abandoned them and that's good because that creates loyalty as well mm, yeah. yeah 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 i just finished this yeah i just finished the second mm. arc um and the other thing that's i really enjoyed is at the end of that second arc there's a really really great boss battle um, which I was telling you guys about before and there's actually a few boss battles at the end of that arc but this one you meet you meet the boss character quite early in the arc and it's quite a long meandering arc that, which you know makes sense in the context of what you're doing but there's always this kind of feeling that mm. at some point this confrontation is going to be inevitable and unlike the other boss fight when it does come to play it's quite personal like it feels a bit less like a grand moment it's a bit of a scrap between two people who at this point kind of know each other and have been kind of waiting for this to happen um and it's the first time in a while that i finished a boss fight and be like that was really fun like it was (laughs) challenging it made sense in the narrative it felt satisfying across the board it has three phases in it, which obviously each phase is a little more Mm. challenging, but in the last phase, the boss summons like a whale made out of water, which was the most dramatic like shown in anime. Yeah. That's one of his moves. And I was like, that's sick. It's really, really cool. Um, And yeah, I was thinking about it and I was wondering what boss battles you guys have really enjoyed or that have really stuck out to as being fun or satisfying or horrible but satisfying which is sometimes the case in a soul's like (laughs) (laughs) do you want to go first with Emma? well I'm actually not going to talk about souls here Um, (laughs) I'm actually going to talk about a boss fight from my childhood that I think really set the standard for me in terms of boss fights on what makes for a good boss fight Um, so the final boss battle of the legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time um, Basically, you're playing... Zelda games are pretty simple. Basically, some unholy evil, you know, manages to um, basically take over the 
the fantasy world of Hyrule and you are um, basically the chosen boy known as Link and you are the, the sort of one hero that will restore justice and peace to Hyrule. And that's essentially what um, the Legend of Zelda Arena of Time is, that's, that's, that's the basic plot of it. So um, Hyrule Castle, you see Ganon there, he's taken over the castle, he's taken Princess Zelda hostage, you confront him and uh, suddenly you're in this massive arena and you play like magic tennis with Ganon. So he's got like these energy balls, you've got like your, you know, your, your master sword and you know, you're, you're playing tennis essentially until the energy balls, you know, Ganon, you know, his, his aim isn't great, the energy ball hits him, rebounds hits him and then you can go up and you can slash him mm. and eventually this goes on and on and then kaboom it's like you've defeated Ganon, Zelda comes down but of course Ganon being petty he's like I'm going to take the whole <laughs> castle down with me so you and Zelda you know you're running down the crumbling castle there's this real sense of urgency like you know Koji Kondo's score is like epic and really really like melancholy in a way there's this sense of you know you're fighting for your life here you know you've got to get down to the moment you've got to escape the castle um so eventually Zelda and Link they manage to get out of the castle however from the rubble arises Ganon and he's wild <laughs> he this does. time yeah <laughs> he's boss fight and you know the, the skies are like this dull brown is cloudy there's like this, this lightning coming down and Ganon transforms into this monstrous beast wielding two blades at once and of course he hits the master sword out of your hand and it it, you know, flings into the air, lands near Zelda, who just happens to be at, you know, the, sort of the edge of the arena, and fire now surrounds you, so you, you now have no sword, no master sword, which is key to banishing Ganon, because mm -hmm. it's the, the sword that defeats all evil. Uh. So now, you as the player character, uh, so you as the player, like, you know, you're panicking because it's like, oh, holy shit, like, <laughs> I've got to use all my other items now that I've used throughout the game, so, you know, it's time to, you know, <laughs> use our thinking skills, so you might use, you know, your fire arrows, your ice arrows, your light arrows. Um, if you did the big Goron quest, you'd use the big Goron sword, and so, you know, now you're slapping away at Ganon, you know, he's super, you know, he's, he's wild now, and there's something about the size differential, you know, Ganon mm. is, like, he's rabid, you know, he's empowered by, um, so basically in Zelda lore, there's, like, this, this, it's not an entity, it's this kind of mystical object called the Triforce, and when the Triforce is sort of, um, acquired by somebody that has a good heart then the world is at peace but when it is acquired by somebody with a tainted or evil heart the the world begins to reflect that mm -hmm. in this case the triforce can actually be sort of um fragmented and so zelda for example has the triforce of wisdom link has the triforce of courage and ganon has the triforce of power um this is like i should say this plot this general plot of these three having these parts of the triforce is like consistent throughout zelda um, anyway, so that's how Ganon transforms. Um, so he's he's uber powerful right now. You know, we don't have a Master Sword. We've only got the Triforce of Courage. Eventually, we wear him down with you know the items that you have that have helped you throughout your quest. You know, the real MVPs essentially. Um, Ganon is sort of stunned for a moment, and Zelda is like, "Quick, Link, come get the Master Sword!" And so then you run over, you grab the Master Sword, and I should say as well, 
when you get hit in the arena by Ganon, Zelda shrieks. And so you've got this, you know, this this musical piece, mm. you know, pumping. It's like, this is the final battle. Like, come on, like, if you die here, like, Hyrule's done for. It's going to be this desolate wasteland full of evil, conniving creatures forever. You know, you, you've got to restore the land to peace. Zelda's here. She's waiting. Um, and so you get the Master Sword back. You do a few more, you know, flicks. And then Zelda, you know, finally decides to do... Decides to do something. Decides to do something. It's like she... Somehow her light powers have consolidated and she throws this massive light beam at Ganon and he's like stunned and she's like, Link, the final blow. And so you go up, you know, you press your like A or B button on your Nintendo 64 controller. I can't remember which one. (laughs) And then this cutscene plays and it's like... At the time, as a child, I remember finding it quite visceral and violent. Mm. Seeing Link cut into Ganon the way that um, it is kind of framed here. It is like Link's snapped, essentially. Like, he is hacking away at Ganon here. Um, And then, that's kind of it. Zelda calls upon the other sages of Hyrule to help her, you know, put Ganon back where he belongs in, in this evil realm. And that's the end of the game, but it just made such a lasting impression on me as an eight-year-old playing through this. Um, there's something, I feel like there's like three major elements that make a really good boss fight, um, maybe four, but one is like the sense of urgency. Throughout this fight, particularly the second phase, you feel this sense of urgency. Um, like I was saying before, it's because Ganon is so... Um, he's so grotesque and monstrous like he's he's finally snapped essentially and so you want to defeat this threat as soon as you possibly can two is intensity again like and this can extend to skills as well i think i'm um, going to dark souls where you're expected to perform in um you know uh, really intense uh, an intense situation really um there's this sense of you know you really have to be on your a game you you really need to utilize all the skills um that you've mustered um throughout the game either so far or at the end of the game if it's a final boss um to defeat the threat and then finally there's like emotionality so to speak um or emotiveness like like i said zelda up shrieking um as your hit as ganon hits you um is quite a choice and there's very few boss fights where I've actually felt as if that that extra element of um, how can you say of almost like connection to another character mm. or that sense of um, that additional I don't know, is it ludonarrative dissonance I don't know it's like that sense of oh you have been hurt you know what I mean or you are hurting the enemy um I think I've mentioned on the podcast before another boss fight in Dark Souls um where you um meet Sif who is this great wolf that is uh, protecting oh, yes. the grave yes uh, yeah. protecting the grave of its that the night Artorius, yes yeah. and if you play the DLC of Dark Souls before getting to Sif um then Sif you actually team up with Sif in the DLC and and Sif does remember you when you get to this point. It's a different cutscene to the base game. Um, however, because Sif has taken an oath to protect her owner even in death, um, she will still fight you. And it's not the kind of boss that you can skip. Um, there's lots of um, additional um, uh, bosses in Dark Souls, but Sif you must defeat for a certain item that she's guarding. Um, and yeah, so. Sif is a difficult fight, she's fast, you know, she's a wolf with a blade in her mouth, um, so, you know, she's quite ferocious, 
but when you hit her, she moans in pain, mm. and it, it's uh, it's a deliberate design choice um, to make you you know reflect upon what you're you're doing. Um, yes, you know, in I mean, depending on your choices in the game, you might be defeating Sif for none other than the worst possible choice or outcome for the world. What you're doing isn't necessarily for the greater good. Mm. Um, you're inflicting pain upon this being simply because you want what she is guarding. Um, and I find that, yeah, that, that kind of intentional, um, I should really just call it pain. I feel like mm. in a lot of games, you know, we skirt over the fact that um, mm. when we are being hit or we are the one, you know, uh, providing the hits, you know, there is that sense of that would really hurt in reality. You know, mm. these beings probably have nerves. They probably feel physical pain. Um, and so, yeah, that that's something in um, a few boss fights that I've, I've noticed that sometimes they implement it, but um, it, it's really, really rare to come across a boss fight that I think does that really, really well mm. um, and, and leaves a lasting uh, impression. And yeah, that's what I think about boss fights, really. Um, I feel like I enjoy most boss fights, but they can be quite uninspired in the sense that it feels like they've just been placed within the game because they need to they need to be there. That, mm. That's what a game includes. It includes boss fights um, in specific genres. Um, another boss fight actually that I feel like actually draws from another part of that emotionality I was talking about was The Last of Us Part 2 where you play as Abby and you're actually chasing um, Ellie. Oh yeah, yes. Jesus. So it's a, so it's a different <laughs> dynamic. It's not quite a boss but it's definitely a portion of the game that you can consider like a mini boss um, sort of stage and so in The Last of Us, the first the first game, obviously you follow the journey of Joel and Ellie as they as they sort of find love in the zombie apocalypse for another. Um, but um, obviously you, you have this connection to Ellie. You know Ellie. You like Ellie. While playing as Abby, chasing Ellie, there's a sense of I think for some people I read online, they felt this sense of betrayal. Yeah. You know, seeing yeah. Ellie's like swift, lithe body, like you know, move in and out of this um, this back theater. So mm. it, the setting of the boss fight is this theater, and you're in a, a section of it where there's lots of boxes and it's dark and kind of grimy, and you're chasing Ellie. Um, because she has killed parts of your faction, essentially, which she has done because you've killed her her mm. her father, essentially. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's this sense of betrayal as you, as the player, are having to hunt down Ellie um, in quite you know violent ways. You know when you actually manage to grab her. Um, so yeah, I thought that that was um, sort of a genius boss fight uh, mm. as well. Um, yeah, I don't know, but. Uh, they're quite they can be quite unique in ways mm -hmm. I feel um, but yeah a lot of them seem a bit a bit uninspired even though I do still enjoy them I do like the the challenge of a boss fight but mm -hmm. um, there's few that really stick in my mind mm -hmm. there's been really really good boss fights yeah I like what you were saying about what makes a good boss fight because I was thinking about that too and I think the thing that makes them stick in my mind is if it does form a climatic mm. yes. moment both in the narrative and also in how yes. you're playing mm. so like in in Zelda where it's like oh now I actually have to use all these things that I've acquired it's going to force me to think yes but also you know it's it kind of acts as a good pivotal point in the narrative which is I think why I loved 
the fight in Genshin so much because it felt like it felt inevitable and also you know like a kind of pivot in what was happening what was quite a calm quest suddenly changes and that's kind of the axis on which that happens yeah and you know being visually impressive and mechanically challenging I think for me are probably mm. the other two things that make a boss fight really memorable yeah yeah I will say like I totally agree with everything you've said there but I want to focus on like mechanics just quickly have you ever come across a boss fight where mechanics have been suddenly added Mm. That is the only, that is like a pet peeve of mine with a boss fight, <laughs> is when suddenly yeah. you've been playing the game, like, you know, it, with a, a certain amount of prediction of what the gameplay is going to be like, yeah. right? There's a certain amount of mechanics that are present and you kind of know how, you know, the game is structured in terms of what is, like, expected of you. But then you come to a boss fight and it's like, oh, now suddenly I need to think in, like, this different way. Mm. And sometimes yeah. that can be... I think engaging but other times I can find it quite annoying I'm mm. just like wait I was meant to do this like that's so different to the rest yeah. of the game and not in a necessarily positive way I feel like I've played boss fights before where they've added some kind of the ones that come to mind is when they've added like a structure that you have to use like a catapult yeah. Yeah. yeah and sometimes that really works and sometimes it feels like it detracts from yes. the scale or the significance of the the boss itself because you're suddenly like oh my god where's the yeah where's the like device i'm looking for and yeah i think i was playing it wasn't really a boss fight but it's kind of like a chain of fights that kind of are part of a boss fight but in assassin's creed valhalla mm. there's a part of the game where it's it's actually london that you're in and it gets attacked from the sea and you're kind of prompted to use this like ballista type thing to to help you out and it was just so annoying to use that <laughs> I was like well no and I just left and went and did it myself but it kind of you know that sometimes can take you out of the yeah of it yeah. when you're like this is a really big narrative moment in this quest or this game and I can't figure out how to use it you know it probably wasn't that difficult to do as well. So sometimes you're a bit frantic. As yeah, well yes. as which is like that's that's what you want to encourage. Yeah, right? You want yeah. that panicky, sweaty, stressed feeling. So if you're f you're fiddling trying to get something to work, it doesn't yeah, necessarily. I think yeah. The, the book equivalent is when you're reading a book that you're really enjoying, and it drops in a device, or it, mm. it suddenly changes its tone in a way that is jarring. Which sometimes can be done on purpose, and sometimes it's just you know when there's kind of like a really left field event that doesn't really get ex it kind of feels like that when there's a technique that comes out of nowhere mm. but it, i'm sure it can be done well as yeah. well <laughs> <laughs> well i have a few examples to be honest it's funny if we talk about mechanics like all the elements are mm. to bosses because the first thing i did was open up my media library and was like i'm gonna look at my battle music playlist mm -hmm. and i have like over 400 songs because i'm mm. a bit of a battle music theme i love it i need to oh. It's the I, it's my it's my baby. <laughs> I love it so much. And I was like, okay, because music for me is so important in mm -hmm. games, and I always yeah. bang on about this, but I just think it's so vital. And I think in a lot, and I whinge about this a lot, but like with open world games in general, I think a lot of people are forgetting the importance of music because. Mm -hmm sometimes I'm like they forgot to put it in. Mm -hmm. Like I literally feel like they forgot to put it in. But um, 
So there's a few I thought of. I thought of the original Assassin's Creed at the very end when you fight Al Moalim mm-hmm. and you have the apple, mm-hmm. like the of Eden. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool because the whole game was fairly repetitive and that's fine, you know, because when it was made and it was yeah. innovative and all that sort of thing. So that's whatever. But, you know, you, you went into a city and you kind of sussed out what was going on and you did listening quests, you mm-hmm. did, like, stalking quests, blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of the same and you're going to get in the swing of things. And then right at the end, this guy, Amolim, has this apple, which is this artifact, this magical artifact that you've been looking for and hearing about for the whole game. And so until now, the game has been, like, not really fantasy. Like, mm-hmm. it's been kind of normal. Yeah. <laughs> and then suddenly, he's glowing, got this glowing gold fantastical artifact mm-hmm. and there's duplicates of him moving around and you have to fight him. And it mm-hmm. just felt... I think it felt really powerful soundtrack obviously is amazing <laughs> but also because it was it was such a twist compared to what you've been doing up until that point and the whole game was kind of building up until that point mm-hmm. like in the sense that you knew there was this artifact it's been lost throughout history some people have been using it you're not really sure what exactly it is or how exactly it works and then suddenly you've got five minutes or however long it takes you to fight this boss yeah. battle and the world opens up to you and actually there's all this heebie-jeebie stuff going on yeah and that really stuck out to me and then of course that's why i think in the, to a huge extent they were so successful into moving to two into brotherhood and that was because they were like here's some weird heebie-jeebie alternate history stuff mm-hmm. that's hiding underneath all this irregular everyday um world stuff and i just it really stood out to me yeah yeah that i will say i have played not every boss fight in Assassin's Creed mm. is memorable, but they do have some really good ones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, I kind of forgot about it until you spoke about it, but what I always talk about is the hyena in Assassin's Creed Origins. Yeah! Um, and she's one of your targets, and she's her, like, hideout? I, yeah. It's been, a, it's been a minute. I'm probably not going to is in the pyramids, um, and you kind of, like, pursue her and there's quite a bit of, I think it's probably one of the points in the game where it also like dips into the mm. TV. And Origins was like, I was thirsty for that. And Origins was <laughs> like, so yeah. every time, and, that, and to be totally honest, they didn't do it enough for me. Yeah. Like the DLC should have been the main game for me. But when they did do it, mm. it was like, oh, this is good. And it really yeah. sucked you in. And like, you pursue her through the pyramid and, and Bayek has lost a child. Mm. And so is she. So they're kind of, similar in terms of how they've ended up Mm. where they are but the fight itself is outside and there's like a sandstorm happening and she's an archer so she's almost always hidden from view Mm. and she has hyenas which (laughs) you can hear and they're terrifying they sound so scary it's quite it's quite scary and also like she moves really fast it's very hard to pin her down um and i think because i really like playing as an archer in games like that's probably what i gravitate mm. to if i have to pick a class or a weapon so i was also an archer and it felt really quite dramatic yeah. and yeah it was really good mm. and it, to be honest the story was pretty light a lot of the a lot of her background as a character was kind of through environmental storytelling which yeah you don't really spend a lot of time talking to her not like the other one i played where you spend like a whole quest line sort of uneasily working with someone and then they're the boss and you're like of course mm. <laughs> it kind of you just sort of learn about it from the towns around yeah um where she is and yeah i think there's a few i played in assassin's creed mm. games that 
are quite good. Mm. I think because they do, they do a really clever job of bringing in the fantastical mm. into something that's otherwise it's not there. Mm -hmm. And then so when it does appear, they do it in quite dramatic ways. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there's a couple others that came to mind. I think. If I'm allowed to say it, because I don't know if it counts as a boss battle, but in your Automata, mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, in one of the final playthroughs when you're um, when you're infected, mm -hmm. and it's creepy as because now your your hearing isn't working, your eyes aren't really working, it's all glitchy, and there's like constant ringing and glowing lights, so you can't. It's really hard to see and, and hear what's actually going on, and it's just absolute chaos. Like the robots coming in and bombing, and all the other androids have become infected and are fighting you. And it's not maybe a long period of the game. I want to say half an hour, 20 minutes, something like that. But it feels like a boss battle scenario because it's just bam, 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 fight, 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 fight in this really chaotic atmosphere. And I think, again, that was powerful in part because of the music, of course. Mm -hmm. That just the audiovisual effects were so jarring. Mm. It was like a slap in the face of like, this is terrifying and now things are different. And you have to deal with this yeah. and it was so effective i was oh my god you can tell i'm excited i was like my heart was racing and i was like oh my god and just and i hadn't felt that strong feeling in a game yeah. i think in a long time and it just really drew me in mm. is this when tubi becomes yes, yes 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 yeah. yeah i find that that's i feel like that really challenged my expectation so you know how sometimes at the beginning of games for example you're sort of dropped into a really significant boss fight and you're like this is the beginning of the game like I'm mm. meant to lose right it's like there's a common trope that can, true. That, that's used but in this instance it really challenged my belief in that because it, the you as 2B you know slowly losing complete mm. power and control over your body it goes on for so long like they they seriously drag it out and you know there is that that the consistent threat of a robot's going to take you out mm. and um there is nothing at all to defend yourself of course yes you are meant to lose 2B is mm. meant to collapse but you have to get to um, a certain point yes yeah. but you do have to get to a certain point yeah so I found that really interesting. I really like, yeah, it was frantic. Yeah, As you said yeah. before, it was extremely frantic and yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Mm, very mm. powerful and, and very dramatic. And it's like that game, and I won't go on that, I promise you, but it's sad. Mm. Like it is very emotional. And that was kind of the, I say the beginning of the end kind of that scene, I think, because mm. it was just like, okay, now everything is different and now you see what could possibly happen. Yeah. So cool. Um, yeah, otherwise, there were two other ones that came to mind and I'll be really brief. <laughs> um, one was Inakami, you know, uh -huh. the PS3 yeah. game. And like, because Inakami, what was so innovative is that you use your controller to do the paintbrush because you're the Amaterasu, the wolf mm. goddess, your tail is a paintbrush and Super cool, obviously. Mm -hmm. But then when you fight Nine Tails, who like the Pokemon, is mm -hmm. it's or Kitsune. Nine. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. She's Kitsune, like she's got Nine Tails, mm -hmm. so she has nine paintbrushes. So yeah. in the boss battle with her, you're trying to outdo, you're trying to outdo her. You're trying to use a different like god power with your paintbrush yeah. at the same time or do it quicker. Mm. And it was just cool like it was yeah. such a clever use of mechanics it was like oh yeah well this whole game you're the goddess with this awesome cool power but look out what happens if somebody else has that power and can do it nine times instead of <laughs> once you know yeah. and that was just i thought it was just really clever a way of like turning the tables on you a little bit mm -hmm. 
um, and making you think. You'd be like, oh, okay, they're doing like cherry bombs. I've got to, I've got to cross it out. Or I've got to do wind to blow out the fire. You know, it was. It had to make you think really quickly. Um, and soundtrack amazing. Um, but I think I was trying to think of one more recently <laughs> and um one that came to mind was divinity original sin 2 which mm -hmm. i did finish a few I, I played it twice and i'm currently playing it for the third time with another set of friends because <laughs> it's amazing um i won't i don't want to give huge spoilers because it's such a good twist the, like, right at the very end the final very final boss battle mm -hmm. is really full-on in terms of realizing what's going on in the world mm -hmm. you can kind of tell a theme here and essentially it's you and your team fighting against the gods of the realm or the would-be gods of the realm mm -hmm. or the maybe sort of where it's kind of complicated mm -hmm. it makes sense when you play it but it's just really eerie because especially for a turn-based game which i think is interesting because in terms of the gameplay there's not a huge amount you can do in a boss battle i feel with these kinds of games mm -hmm. to make it really different and stand out mm -hmm. so here of course you have the same spells the same attacks whatever but you have to strategize so much with your team members to be like okay do we think only one of us is allowed to make it out alive and who is that going to be mm -hmm. why are we making that decision what the what is the impact mm -hmm. going to be of making this decision and sort of trying to figure out okay we have these cool god powers so does this person <laughs> um like how do we navigate that and i hope i'm not explaining it too badly but because it's relatively new and it's such a good twist i just don't mm. want to ruin it for anyone but it's it's just it's i think it did a really good job of making really dramatic a fight that kind of plays out the same as other fights in the game mm -hmm. in the sense that you can't change that much and yet they've managed to make it quite um dramatic is such like of course boss battles should be dramatic but kind of panicky and trying to figure out what should I do and why and we have to work together to make this work yeah. and that was just fantastic and because of course I love really like cult games as well mm. and I really enjoyed that experiencing it together and being like oh my god what like that was such a good feeling but it's quite noteworthy because in that kind of game you don't get the flexibility of scale no necessarily in a lot of other contemporary games mm. you're gonna have to do something else to make it to make it feel yeah to, how do you make it grand special and different when yeah. you have to have a certain system yeah and i think they did such a good job um and it's a great example of how that can be done because mm. i would be a bit stuck too i'd be thinking mm. okay what could we possibly do um and the way that it's designed essentially as a co-op game and the ways it plays with that is quite well done mm. yeah yeah I think it's really interesting that they integrate like moralistic choices like who do you decide to sacrifice yeah. and who goes on to goes on to play because I found that interesting like I've never played World of Warcraft but seeing um, I guess healers make decisions when they go on raids. <laughs> oh yes, I can tell you. So Tank goes first. <laughs> tank is first. Actually, no, I'm first priority because if I die, everyone dies. Tank is second priority. Everyone else can get stuffed and it happens when it happens. <laughs> but it's true, you have to make these yeah. decisions. And sometimes when you play with friends, you're like, okay, this is why I'm doing this. I'm not just hating on you, you know? Yeah. Like, it's true. You're always having to evaluate. Like, 
Yeah. So good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Such I love things that, yeah, push you to make those kind of choices. Mm. Have either of you played Pyre? Oh. Giant game. I have started it, but I haven't got very far. Yeah, that the whole again, it's sort of like you don't want to spoil too much, but the whole premise, which is becomes clear very quickly, is that you're gonna have to let some of your characters go free because they're in purgatory. Yeah. So you are the one who is gonna make that choice, but also your characters, you need them to participate in the rites, and if you're like this character is like essential to my playstyle at the moment. At some point, the game is probably going to push you to let them go. Yeah. You're going to have to change, change your mix up. That that's the sort of like inherent goal you have, and it makes you question this as well because just your team is not the only group of people that's necessarily worthy of freedom, and you kind of have to make that judgment yourself. Mm. But yeah, it it sort of frames you to want to let your party have their freedom yeah you're like i love you and therefore you should be free but also i love you and therefore i want you in my team yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, such a hard choice yeah. it is it's quite like it's sort of metatextual and the mm. fact that it keeps asking you to think about like what you're doing when you're playing the game mm. yeah i do love that though but i also love it because it forces you to like rethink your style of play. Yeah, it's good because it ma- yeah, makes you keep updating and yeah. keep changing, keeping it interesting rather than being yeah. one trick pony yeah. sort of thing. I think that style of game is appealing to me. I think that's why I enjoyed Genshin so much because mm. it has that same kind of, there's a degree of randomness that you have to work with. Mm. Yeah. 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 You might enjoy Darkest Dungeon then. It's kind mm. of like... It has, it's an RPG, but it's also kind of a bit like a roguelike in mm, the sense that the, yeah. the sort of dungeons that you go to are procedurally generated. Yeah. Although, um, if you're going to take on a certain boss, mm-hmm. then um, the boss is like obviously um, the same. Yeah. Um, but basically, the game is extremely difficult and you constantly have characters dying and uh, putting new characters into your team. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get really attached to the characters that survive because um, you know it takes so long to get them to the highest level they mm. can possibly be um, in order to take them to the darkest dungeon, yeah. which is the last dungeon of, of, the, of the game, the last area of the game. Um, but when they go to the darkest dungeon, they will never want to go back. And so as soon as you've gone into the darkest oh, dungeon with one of those yeah. characters, they've been so messed up from oh, what wow. they've seen in the dungeon because it's like a Lovecraftian horror yeah. like mm. thematic game. Um, but they're so messed up that if they survive, that is, if yeah. they get to go back to the camp, um, yeah, you can't take them back. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think I would like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it, it's really, mind. really good. So, yeah. Incredibly difficult game. Um, I I started playing it late last year. I, I Actually, I started playing it a few years ago, but I was like, oh, it's a, it's a bit too hard. I don't mm. want this right now. So a few years later, I, I picked it up again. And um, yeah, there's just so much that can happen to your characters. Characters can get like different ailments in um, um, dungeons as mm. well. Like you can become a kleptomaniac. A character that you have that becomes a kleptomaniac will steal treasures that you would usually pocket for <gasps> themselves. Right. Oh, they steal a few. They steal off other people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this could be good. <laughs> you are them. They are your party. They pocket oh, it for themselves. And rude. yeah, so if you interact with... Yeah, so they can... 
yeah, they get to the state of panic. Mm-hmm. Basically, they have a sanity meter. Oh, yeah. And if they panic, if that sanity um, evaporates, then, yeah, they develop um, certain paranoias and ailments. And you can, depending on the character, if you think they're worth still having in your party, then you can chuck them in the asylum to be treated. <laughs> um, but otherwise, so it, I love it. <laughs> it's um, a, a, a mistake that um, new players usually make is that they keep those characters and seasoned players will be like, level two, has an ailment out of the party, get someone else in. Brutal. Like, it's so brutal that, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Just being about bosses and, yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.